joy. It appears three times in Psalm 126. So the psalm, it's about joy, which means this sermon is going to be about joy. But I have to confess, I, I don't really feel like preaching a sermon about joy for, for three reasons. One, uh, my son poked my eye on Thursday, and so I, I have a braised cornea right now. Uh, and it, my eye just was miserable all day yesterday. I just laid around worthless, took like four naps. Um, I mean, I normally would probably take four naps anyway, but I just, I really had to take four naps yesterday. And it was, it was just painful. So I wasn't in an exactly joyous mood. And then, of course, today our trailers are frozen shut. So I'm not in a, like a place of joy right now. Um, two is that when, when I think of joy... I don't think of me. Like, my personality doesn't really fit the joy kind of stereotype we have. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar, remember the song that was popular a few years ago, uh, the Pharrell, Pharrell song, Happy? Do you remember the, the, the lyrics to the chorus? Because I'm happy, come along if you feel like a room without a roof. Right? My room has a roof to it, a very, very solid roof that you cannot get through. Right? Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. I'd rather not clap. Um, if possible. So when I, when I think of joy, I think of bubbly personalities. I, I think of overly energetic people with very big smiles, people who enjoy doing jazz hands and giggle frequently. And I'm just, I'm not a giggler. I don't enjoy jazz hands. And if you, if you gave me a nickname, it wouldn't be Bubbles. Uh, so I'm just not, you don't, you should, none of you probably think joy uh, and, and me in the same sentence. This is not what I, I give off. And, and the other reason probably more significant, it was just hard to kind of sit down and write a sermon on joy, is that, that for whatever reason, the last several months of, of my own life, my own experience, um, has been one with more, more sorrow and sadness and, and melancholy to it. And so to get up and, and talk about joy, one, I feel like I can't really speak from my experience, but two, it just, it just runs counter to what, where my life has been the last few months. So maybe you hear that and you think, well, Good. Tim has just told us three very compelling reasons why he shouldn't preach on joy. Does that mean? Does that mean no sermon? Let's go home. Cheese starting an hour and seven. No, sorry to disappoint. There is still a sermon on, on joy. And, and to me, it's it's just a good reminder that that what we do on Sunday mornings. I don't come with my life experience and my life wisdom to give to you because that would just be ridiculous if that's what happened anyway. Like I'm 32, I have nothing, um, to say. But but that's why we di- we try to dig into God's word, and let God speak through His word and. And while I may have little to say about joy, um, God has much to say about joy. And so, so I hope we listen. I need to listen this morning. Um, and so what, what does God have to say? What is, in Psalm 126, what does he say about joy? Um, and I want to say he, he answers three questions for us. One, why, why joy, joy is so elusive to us? Why even when we feel like we have it, 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 it goes away pretty easily, pretty quickly? Two, I want to define joy for us so that we don't think like bubbly personality, like really happy people. Like what is joy in a, in a real definition? And third, how do we get it? All right, why is it so hard to grab onto? What, what is it and how do we get it? So first, why, why is joy so elusive? And, and before we, we jump in to Psalm 126, we need to diagnose what, why is that? Let's, let's press into that question. And, and I think Pharrell's song, Happy, is... It's helpful here, especially that, that line from his chorus that I, I read, which is clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Right? Happiness is probably our, our one truth as a culture. It's, it's the way we navigate through our, our lives. Do what makes you happy. Follow your desires. That whatever you, Whatever's going to give you happiness, that's what you need to do. It's a Psalm 126 definition of joy. It's the complete opposite of that. And yet, I would say, you don't, even, you don't need to be a Christian. You don't even need to believe in the Bible. You don't even need to go to Psalm 126 to, to see that, 
if you make happiness the guiding principle of your life, it's, that's a really shaky foundation. The Viktor Frankl, who was um, a Jewish person who uh, endured the concentration camps of the Nazi regime, he, he talked at length about the difference between those who survived the concentration camp and those who, who didn't. And one of uh, his conclusions was that, that something our culture takes for granted, that, that happiness being our one truth, that you should live your life pursuing happiness, uh, he concluded that's a, really, that's a terrible guide to life. You're going to run into lots of problems. And so here's what he wrote. He's not a Christian. Here's what he wrote in his book, Man's Search for, for Meaning. So success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You, you, can, you have to let it happen by not caring about it. What he's saying is that if you, if you make your own happiness, your own joy, your own desire, at the center of your life, you'll never have it. It'll, it'll, always, it'll, it'll always elude you. That you can't be the center of your life. You have to devote yourself to something greater than yourself if you're going to know true joy, true happiness. And so if, if all you care about is success, happiness, those things, then when, when suffering comes, you'll be lost. You'll be devastated. Right? And, and listen, suffering, sorrow, it, it will come. And what he's saying is if, if happiness is your chief end, then listen, suffering's going to take that from you. And you can't get it back until suffering goes away. And there's times, especially when you're in the death camps, you, you can't just remove suffering from your life. And while none of us probably will ever be in a death camp, we, there will be types of suffering that will hit us that we can't control. We don't have control over. And if, if our guiding principle in life is our own happiness, then suffering will strip that away right from us. And I think that's why joy is so elusive to us, why we have it and it's gone, why we grab it and then it, it, it just vanishes. That it's a weak foundation on which to, bow, bound, or to build your life on. Again, you don't, you don't even have to be a Christian to, to see that. It's, it's a weak way in which to go about your life. So that raises the question, okay, what's a better foundation? And Psalm 126 begins to unpack that, what that is from a perspective of the God of the Bible, what joy looks like from a Christian, Jewish, Hebrew scripture perspective. And, and so, so we need to answer that question, un unveil that by just asking the question, okay, what is joy? How do we define joy, right? If joy isn't, if it's not Pharrell song happy, if it's not, it's not giggling or being bubbly, what is joy? What, what exactly is it? And, and I want to define that out in three ways from, from Psalm 126. First is that the joy is, is a consequence and not a command. And you, you might have heard that. That's what Viktor Frankl was saying. Success, you, happiness, you can't pursue it. It has to ensue. It has to come as a byproduct of, of what you're pursuing, not as the aim. And that's what's going on in, in, in this psalm. And so it starts by the people of God recalling some past grand act that God had done among them. Whatever it, is, whatever it was, it was so good that it was like a dream to them. And so the people of God, they laughed, they shouted for joy. It was so good that they celebrated. And, and it wasn't just that they celebrated. It was that the nations surrounding them actually celebrated. Then in verse, verses 2 and 3, we hear that the, then they said, the nations said among themselves, the Lord has done great things for them, for Israel, for God's people. So we don't, we don't know what that moment was. We don't know what's, what happened, what, what is going on here that caused the nations to, to, to look at the people of God, to look at Israel and say, their God is great. But I think whatever it is, we, can, we should be able to relate as Christians in this time of season at, at, at Christmas. Um, this, this time, uh, this past week, I spent a lot of time listening to, to Handel's Messiah, the song. 
And I came across, as I was going through the different YouTube versions of it, there was a flash mob that gathered in a mob, uh, in a mall, not a mob, uh, and, and although they were a mob, singing in the mall at, at the, the food court, and they just started singing Handel's Messiah, you know, when uh, flash mobs were like 2012 fad thing. I mean, I guess they still maybe go on, but, but they do this, they gather, they sing, and it's this really beautiful chorus in the midst of a mall. It's just very striking, the two, the setting versus the song. And as I watched this, this video, I was just struck by these words ringing out at some mall, at some city in, in, in America. The lyrics they were singing, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Hallelujah. Now, I don't know how many people who were singing that or who were in the mall sitting listening to that actually believe that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and it should induce in us a hallelujah. Um, but it's an example of Psalm 126 come to life. So what, one thing I love about Christmas is everybody gets in on the joy, right? It's not limited to Christians, right? Just, everybody can get in on this, and that's, that's because Christians, for the last 2,000 years ago, have, have been, become convinced that God came among us, he dwelt among us, he lived among us to know us, to, to save us. And because of that, because that was so good, because that was an incredible gift given to us, Christians started saying, we need to start giving gifts to, to, to one another. Right? God has given us an amazing gift in Jesus, and now we must give gifts to others. Right? We need to throw parties and celebrate because God has visited among us. He, um, he has, has, has saved us. Right? We need to get weird and put lights on our houses because the true light which comes into the world has shown light into our darkness. So Christians started doing all these weird things, and people are like, that looks like fun. Let's get in on it too. And so everything about this Christmas season is you don't have to believe any of the Jesus message to get on the joy available this time of year. Right? People may not say this explicitly, but this entire season, people are saying the Lord has done great things for those Christians. And so let's give gifts. Let's put lights on our houses. Let's celebrate. And what that means for us as we begin to unpack joy, what, what, what joy is, it means first, joy is it's not, you're not commanded to be joyful. It's a consequence of getting in the way of what God is doing. Right? And Psalm 126, and, and, and nowhere in the Bible you find the, the scripture saying, get yourself together and get happier. What's your problem? Like just start smiling more. Like get, get joyful, right? You're not commanded to be joyful. It's a byproduct in Galatians 5. It's a byproduct of having the Holy Spirit is you have joy. It, it's a gift that comes to you. Joy is a consequence of being involved with what God is doing in the world. It's a gift. It's a consequence of being near to, to God. And so it's not just a fruit of the Spirit. You also see this in Jesus' own life. And so Jesus, good friend John, he wrote a, narr a narrative about the life of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of John. And in that Gospel, John says there are, are a number of signs that he, he tells us about Jesus. And the word sign, it, it didn't just mean, hey, like, listen to this story. It meant this, this thing Jesus did, it, it points to something deeper that is true about him, that is significant about him that you cannot miss. It's a sign pointing you to the significance of Jesus. And the first sign that John records about Jesus is at a wedding. And the wedding's about to come to an end several days early because they're going to run out of wine. And so what Jesus does is he, he doesn't just like make some, make some more wine. He doesn't just like hook people up with some money to go buy more, more wine. He, he turns a well of water into wine. They basically say, this, this party will not end too soon. This party will live it out, itself out. And not just that, but the, the wine taster, when he tastes the wine, uh, he, he brings it to, um, to the master of the, 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 the feast and says, why did you save the best wine for last? Right? You, know, you bring it out first. You lead with, with what's strongest. 
And then once you've ate and drank a little bit, your, your taste buds are numb. Then you bring out the cheap stuff so you still look like you, you know what you're doing. But you don't, you, don't, you don't save the best stuff for last. So it's not just that Jesus is convinced that no party should end too soon, but also we should have the best drink possible. And John is saying, if you, the first thing you need to know about Jesus is if you get in his way, the party will not end, and he will have the best wine. Right? Joy is a consequence of getting into the way of God, of getting into his, who he is, what he's doing in the world. It's a consequence, not a command. That, that's first. Um, the second, you see that the joy, it amplifies life. It doesn't hide it. And so in verses 1 through 3, we see God does some great thing among Israel, and everyone erupts in joy, right? God is, God is doing something great. They're in the way. They, they have joy. But then the next, in verse 4, you have a bit of a sharp turn. There is, the psalm is describing Israel's life as, as a desert. It's dry. It's empty. There's tears. There's, there's weeping. The advice I often hear most in the world from our culture when, when it comes to sadness and sorrow is, is something along the lines of, you know, it's, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry. Don't cry. It's going to get better. Just, just stick it out. Which is really another way of saying, like, suppress your pain. Suppress what, don't think about it, don't look at it. Look over there, not over there, don't think about it. If you just hold on long enough, it'll all go away. And so I, I, our culture, I think, is really good at hiding what troubles us, hiding what, 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 what makes us hurt or what gives us pain. But a life of joy in the biblical sense, it doesn't do that. You don't have to hide anything. And I would say that this advice makes sense if your one goal in life is to be happy. If, that's, if your only goal in life is to pursue your desire so you have satisfaction, happiness in life, then the reality is any suffering in your life, it, can ha- it cannot have redeeming quality to it. It's only an obstruction. Right? If, you, if you get cancer, that, that just is going to ruin your good time. It can't, it's not going to add to your life in any way. And so, so, of course, we need to hide it. We need to suppress it. We need to pretend like it's, it's not there because it's just going to get in the way of our happiness. And certainly we don't want other people to know that we don't have it together or that our, or we're not happy or that our life is, is failing us in some way. And so Eugene Peterson, an author, a former pastor, he points out how we, how we do this in our culture, how we suppress our pain down, we suppress our sorrow down. And, and here's, here's what he has to say. He says, the enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court gesture to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. And what he's saying is, as a culture, we're very entertained. We don't, we don't really have joy. But often our, our strategy for happiness is, is to grab a drink. It's to turn on the television. It's to, to turn to, to sex. It's to turn to money. It's to turn to, to buy something for myself. It's to turn to a little phone to give me quick bouts of pleasure in the midst of a long day. And so it's very self-centered. It's very me-centered. It's very happiness Centered. And Peterson's saying our entertainment is, industry is an, in, in, a, a sign that we, we, aren't, we aren't joyful. We don't have a great degree of joy. But in, in Psalm 126, it's not what's happening. Joy is, is depicted as, as life amplified, both sorrows, sadness, and happiness. There's shouts for joy, and there is weeping and tears. So that's, that's what I mean when I say joy, it amplifies life. It doesn't, it doesn't shut it down. It amplifies both our sorrows 
and our happiness. And so let me show how this works out in the way of, of the psalm. At first, joy, it amplifies our sadness. It, it gives our sorrows greater weight. And in verse 4, the psalmist talks about um, the life of Israel being like a desert. It's dry. And so he talks about his life as if it's, it's the Negev. It's, it's a desert region. And, and so for, for most of the year, this, this region was dry. There was no life. It, was, it looked dead. It was depressing. But if it rained, and even a small amount of rain, if it just got an, you know, in, as little as an inch of rain, those dry stream breads could, could sprout to life and have um, um, streams running, flourishing with water. Vegetation grass could sprout up almost overnight. Almost overnight, you could go from desert to garden. And so what the psalmist is saying to God is that, God, we, we're a desert, but just the smallest amount of you, your presence, your grace, if you were to rain just a little bit on us, if you were to visit us, this desert, it would become a garden. Which is one reason why, if, if you're a Christian, I, I think it's okay, actually, to, be, to have more sorrow and, and a, an intensified sorrow in your life because you've seen God work. You know what he can do. And so when we pray, God, why is my life like a desert right now? You know the garden. You know just a little bit of his presence, his reign, could come and completely change your life, which deepens the sorrow when he doesn't do it. And so I, for my own life, I don't know why the last several Months have, have had more sadness, more sorrow to them than, than joy. But, but I know a part of it for me is becoming a, just being a Christian. My heart isn't hardened to this world. I don't try to shut things out so that I can keep my happiness to my, myself. The Christian life, it's not a suppression of life. So when I sit down with someone and there's pain, I don't have to put up my hand and say, stop, keep that to yourself. I don't have to divert my attention. I don't have to, to offer stupid cliches about it's really not that bad, just get over it. I can sit in the desert with them. I can sit in the sorrow with them, longing for the garden when what we have is a desert. So being a Christian means we know the world isn't as it should be. We know God has done great things. We know God will do great things. And so we can let the sadness of a world in when our world is a desert, not a garden. We don't have to hide as Christians. We don't have to put on a fake facade of joy for others. So listen, if, if you're a Christian, your heart is softened to this world, to people who are hurting, to injustice, to, to the desert. And it actually, in a way, when you know the joy of Christ, you know the joy of God, it actually amplifies your sorrows in a way. But secondly, uh, it, it amplifies your, your happiness. And I'm going to push, I know this is probably a stretch for some of you, but I'm going to push for this. I, listen, I think Christians often have a bad rap for being no fun or for being blowhards. Um, and sometimes that's true. There are some Christians that, uh, that need to take a break on, on some things. But, but that's not been my most common experience. I've actually I've laughed hardest in church. I've laughed hardest with my, my Christian friends. Maybe that's not your experience. I don't want to for a second uh, um, overlook the, the great pain the church causes people often. And, and listen, as a pastor, I've been in the midst of a lot of that pain. I see that. I see the effects. I don't want to overwrite that. That is, that is for real. Um, and yet I want us to understand all of that, like pain in church or super seriousness in church, that's a sign of, of us failing to understand and know God, not a sign of flourishing. Right? That's not an, a faithful expression of our God when we're like super serious and never laugh with one another. I believe the church, it should produce the best comedians. It should throw the best parties. We should laugh the hardest here because the way of Jesus is the way of joy. Right? The first sign, the first thing John, who is very close to Jesus, wanted you to know about Jesus is that no party will end too soon with that. He wants you to know that. And so if church is insufferable and we're serious and we never laugh, with one another, we are failing Jesus in his way. Right? What I love about the church, it should be this unique place 
where, where people could come and weep and be, and be sorrowful, right? And their sorrows are amplified. And we can be, we're a place where people can laugh and have joy. And our happiness is amplified. And so inter- what's interesting to me, this word for joy in Psalm 126, in the Hebrew, it literally just means a shout. And it depends on the context. Sometimes you'll find it's a shout of, of lament. It's a shout of pain. It's a shout of sorrow. And here in Psalm 126, it's clearly a shout for joy. God has done great things. We, we lift up our voices in praise. And I think that's an image of what the church is to be, a place where both sorrows are not held back, and we don't suppress them, and we don't say, be quiet and keep that to yourself, and it's all going to be okay. And at the same time, we laugh. We have unending joy because we're in the way of God. And when you get in the way of God, joy pours forth out of that. And so that, that's a uniqueness we as a church should have to offer. Joy should amplify our life. We don't suppress it. We don't push it down. But thirdly, uh, the third definition of joy I would want to get out of Psalm 126 is that joy, it's, it's an abundance available to us. It's not scarce. But I love the way Psalm, uh, the message ends the translation of Psalm 126. That those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessings. The psalm, it starts with joy because God's among them and at work. It goes to sorrow because there's tears and weeping, but joy gets the last word. And that's something we have to remember as Christians, especially when we enter seasons of sorrow or sadness. That yes, there's room for weeping and, and, and sadness in the church, but we all look forward to the day when joy gets the last word. Right? When our arms get filled full of the blessings of God. And so we have to remember that. We have to look ahead. Our vision has to be clear that that is where... We're heading. Um, then if you get, uh, get, get close enough to me this, this morning and see my, my really creepy pink eye, um, you know, I'm having, I'm having, I've had trouble seeing over the last day and a half. And loss of vision, it affects you in ways that other injuries don't. I mean, like when you can't see, like everything else just falls apart. Like I, I had a headache. I was starting to feel nauseous. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't get around. When I got up in the morning, I was like stumbling around the kitchen. It, it just, everything fell apart when my vision went away, and, and when we lose our sense of vision of where we're headed as God's people, all right, we who go out mourning will come home laughing with arms full of blessing. When we lose that vision, we forget that joy, listen, joy is not a scarcity, that in the end, your arms will be so full of the joy of, of God in Christ, you will not be able to hold it yourself. And we must not lose sight of that. We must not forget that. Joy is for those of us that might be tempted to be cynical, or we, we aren't like Pharrell, we don't go around singing, dancing all the time. For those of us who are, are joy subdued, we must remember that is where we're headed. Even in our saddest days, even when sorrow hits us, we are headed for arms full of, of blessing. So that, that's how I would define joy. Joy, it's, it's a consequence of being in the way of God. It amplifies our lives, both our happiness and our, our sorrow, and it, it's an abundance promise to us. And so how do, how, do we get, how do we get a joyful life? How do we actually taste, experience joy? And the first thing we have to remind ourselves, we've already been, we've said this a few times, but you, you have to remember is, is you can't. Right? One thing I want you to hear from me is that Christians are not people who should be going around saying, you need to get your act together. You need to smile more. You need to be more joyful. It's not really that bad. Get yourself together. Laugh. Right? We're not people who command others to be joyful because joy isn't a command. And so... Author and, and, and pastor Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, we come to God as Christians and to the revelation of his ways because none of us have it within ourselves except momentarily to be joyous. Joy is a product of abundance. It is the overflow of vitality. It is a life working together harmoniously. It is exuberance. Inadequate sinners as we are, none of us can manage that for long. 
That's good news for me, at least. Right? I'm not commanded, be joyful, get, get happy, right? Don't worry about things. We, as Christians, we, that, that's not how we operate because happiness isn't the aim of, of our life. So we don't feel the pressure to always be happy or always be joyful. We know we're inadequate sinners who often can't manage joy in our lives. And so it still raises the question, okay, even if I can't be commanded to go and do it, I can't muster up strength to go be joyful, how, how do we enter into this way of, of joy? And, and two thoughts for that, for how you can enter into a life that will, be, that will just get into the way of God's overflow of joy. First, um, God has to be your strategy to joy. Right, the central crest of Psalm 126 is restore us, O Lord. Make us like things used to be. And, and what were things used to be like and in verses 1 to 3? It was when God was active among them. They're asking for more of God. And so Psalm, the psalm, is, it's not an empty memory of how things used to be. It's not sitting in disappointment of how things are now. It's a request to God. God is their central strategy for joy. All right, restore us. Oh, God, you are where joy is. You have done great things. That is their prayer, and that should be our prayer. And so I would just ask this morning, what are your strategies for, for joy? How do you deal with, with sorrow? How do you deal when life, life's just rough? What, what's your joy strategy? Is it to grab, grab a drink? Turn on a show. Keep your eyes glazed at your phone for, for bursts of happiness. Is it a relationship? Is it other people? Is it money? Is it buying things? What, what's your strategy for, for joy? Is it you? Is it the center of your desires? Is that what drives you towards joy or what hopes will drive you to joy? Or is God your strategy for joy? It's prayer. It's worship. It's Christian community. When you daydream, do you daydream of the great things God has done in history? When you sing about him, does your voice get a little louder? When he commands you to do something, do you, do you do it? And when he disagrees with you, do, do you change him or does he change you? That ultimately joy, it's not a, it's not a command, it's a consequence. That in the end, that there's really only two ways you, you, can, you and I can approach God. One is to, to be convinced that if you really did everything God said, if you really listened to him, if you really trusted him, he's just going to ruin all your joy. Because look at some of the commands in the Bible. So, of course, we can't obey him. If we obey him, well, our joy will die. It'll, it'll go. All the fun stuff he told us not to do. Or, do you know your wine has run out? You cannot supply the joy you need for your life. Only he can. And he makes the best wine, and it will never run out. So, one, if, if you want a joyful life, God has to be your strategy. And secondly, you... You need to plant your tears. In verse 5, it makes this interesting claim. It says that those, those who sow their, their tears shall reap with shouts of joy. What does that mean? Well, first, I want to hit this theme again. Do you see why Christianity allows such room for sorrow or sadness? Tears. Because what, is, what verse 5 is saying is not, hey, if, if you're suffering, if you just hold on long enough, it will get better, right? It's not the empty cliche we often give out in our culture. It's not, it th everything's going to turn out all right. Everything will work okay in the end. What it's actually saying is that if, you're, if you have sorrow, if you have joy, or if you have tears, if you're, if you're weeping, that, that sorrow will produce a greater joy in your life. Like if you plant a seed in the ground, out comes vegetation, comes life. So, well, your, your sorrow, if you plant it, 
it will produce a joy in you. Your sorrow will actually become a greater joy in your life. So if you're in a place of, of sorrow, as I said I am in, in, in this season of life, don't, don't waste your tears. Plant them, sow them. I've seen some of you, you have gardens in your backyard. It's a very intentional act. You have to gather the dirt. You have to, to section it off. You have to plant in very specific ways. And the psalm is saying, do the same with your tears, with your sorrow, with your suffering. Plant them and out will come a harvest of joy. And so what, is, what does it look like to plant your, your tears, right? It's this, this interesting metaphor image. Well, the first thing it would mean is, listen, we're not a people as Christians who try to remove what hurts out of our life. And that's a lot of people, if... If you want to be happy, if that's your main aim, well, the first thing you have to do, you have to get rid of all the people who won't make you happy in your life, which is just about your entire family, right? This time of year reminds us of that. It's, you got to get rid of your family. You got to get rid of most of your coworkers, right? You got to get rid of everyone just about. To, to, you have to get rid of people who might ruin your life, who might ruin your, your vibe or your happiness. It's this attitude of I got to avoid suffering. I got to avoid tears. I have to avoid pain. But, but what the psalm is saying, no, you could do the opposite. You can run in where there are tears. You can run in when someone's life begins to break apart because... Life is not enriched for us by avoiding tears and avoiding weeping. According to the psalm, our life is enriched when we plant our tears with others. It becomes joy. So we don't run from pain. We don't run from sorrow. We don't run from, from suffering. But, but secondly, um, don't just plant your tears generally. Plant them in, in Christ. Pray them out. Sing them out. That's what psalm, the psalms are. They're, they are prayers and they are songs. So, so this is a moment where a community is singing and praying these words together, planting their tears and hopes in Christ, in God. And so maybe you're, you're sitting there thinking, I'm doing that. I'm praying, I'm singing. I go to church when it's below zero outside. Like God, if, any, if God ever owed anyone joy, it's us, right? Let's be honest with ourselves. And yet, yet for many of you, maybe you're, you're, still, you're still a desert. You're still sorrowful. And I would just say, I, I understand. Um, I'm with you even this morning. And it's why we, know, we, we need Christians. Why we, need, we need to remind ourselves, God became flesh, he dwelt among us. And on multiple occasions in the gospel, you find Jesus weeping. His close friend Lazarus dies, and, and he goes to the tomb, and he weeps. He goes to the edge of Jerusalem, and... Even though that city is about to turn on him and kill him, he weeps for them because he's come to bring them joy and they're going to kill him and put him on a cross. And so he knew sorrow, and yet he knew a sorrow that you and I don't know. Right? We, we, we all know sorrow that he knows, but he knows a sorrow that we don't know because he came to offer us life and life to the full, joy unending, and we put him on a cross. And instead of turning to joy itself for our joy strategy, we turn to silly things like drink and sex and money and entertainment. And even though they don't work, we keep turning to them. And yet, even though Jesus knew we keep turning to those things, he came anyway. He entered our sorrows. He planted his tears at a cross, and they planted his body in a grave. But he didn't didn't die mad at us, angry at us. He died a man of sorrows. Right? Jesus, he planted his tears into the ground. And if you want to know with confidence that your own tears can become joy, look at Jesus. His tears go to a cross, and what happens? He comes out alive three days later. His joy outlasts death. It outlasts the worst kind of suffering and lament known to man. And so now there is an endless harvest of joy available to you and me through Christ. 
But Jesus' friend John, the one who, who talked about the, the moment Jesus turned water into wine, he heard Jesus say this, just hours before everyone was going to turn their back on Jesus. Everyone was going to turn away from him, look for joy elsewhere, put him on a cross, mock him, spit on him. Jesus said these words to his disciples just before he goes and dies for them and for us. He says, you will see me again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And I realize that sounds simplistic, but Christianity, it is a simple faith. You, and I, you who and I, who come, we come with nothing. We don't have it in ourselves to be joyful for, for very long. We who come with nothing come to Jesus in faith, who has everything. And if that, if that sounds unrealistic, naive, I, I understand. But listen, there's only three options for all of us when it comes to joy. One is that joy is ultimately, it, is, it feels elusive because it is elusive. And so co cover your sorrows as best you can. Chase happiness as best you can. But in the end, your sorrows will get you. The wine will run out. Suffering, it's going to enter your life. Nothing will give you the joy that ultimately lasts. It's one option. Or two, there, there is a lasting joy that God looks down at us from heaven and says, you know, you need get your act together and get happy. Look at all I've given you. You have enough. Just Smile more, right? Like he just commands at us from on, on high. Like God is just distant from us, telling us to get ourselves together. And then when we have ourselves together, we can approach him for, for joy. Or there's Christianity. Where joy took on flesh and new sorrow and new sadness and planted his tears in the cross. And now that joy is available to us, to you. And for 2,000 years, Christians have marked out this month as a time to pause and to to remember that he came and he is coming. And that there is a joy available to every one of us that will not be taken from you. That there is a wine you haven't tasted yet. And it will never run out. Let's pray. Father, you have done great things. Through your son Jesus, you have been wonderful to us. Help our hearts to rejoice in you. God, we pray that you would do it again. You would do great things again. Bring rain into our drought-stricken lives so that we who sow our tears would reap shouts of joy. So that we with heavy hearts may come home with armloads of blessing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.